Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you for this episode of the show. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve at Church of the Pacific Northwest. I've written a number of books. The latest book is entitled In the House of Tom Bombadil. I'm working on four books simultaneously at the moment, and eventually one of them will be published. Uh, in the meantime, I hang out with these guys on this show, the Theology Podcast. Anyway, let's kick it over to you, Tom, and tell us about yourself and, and your writing project, because you're making some yeah, progress. I'm Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, philosophy, apologetics, ethics, and I'm writing. I'm writing a book on, uh, on ethics. It's taking a while. That's okay. Be patient. It's part of the virtue. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Practice your ethical. <laughs> Practice your ethical thing. Uh, I'm writing on a few areas, uh, you know, um, and, you know, I probably, the, the amount of material I have will probably be end up three or four books as well. And it's going to get into a lot of things, some ethical matters, but in particular, retrieving a lot of the riches of classic Christian vision of, of creation and its significance for um, the way we, we understand ourselves and our orientation towards redemption, um, the gift character of all things, beauty. Um, there's so many, so many things we touched on on the show that I'm writing on. So, but you just got to keep hanging in there. <laughs> they are coming to it. They, they are being drawn in. I have a great, I have a great uh, ally on my side, my wife, who definitely has a, a boundary set. So um, they are coming. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, Glenn, Glenn, tell us about yourself, your latest writing project and the subject of the day, because it's your day. Okay, Glenn Sunshine, Senior Fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, Ministry Associate at Reflections Ministries, um, and retired history professor. Um, my latest book, Manuscript, First Draft In, um, is for what will eventually be a series of books under the heading Flourishing in the New Babylon. Um, and what we're looking at are the challenges that are facing Christians in the world today and how to respond. The first one deals with uh, critical theory, including critical race theory. Uh, the whole gender stuff, LGBTQIA, whatever the other letters are, plus. And uh, also at least some branches of radical environmentalism, which also really fall under the critical theory umbrella. So that, that's the first one. Um, subsequent books are going to be dealing with different aspects of technology and probably as well uh, one on resurgent paganism, which brings us to the topic of the day. Mm -hmm. um, there was an article I ran into actually just today on, from Mere Orthodoxy called The End of Viking Vitalism. Okay, And what it's talking about is if you read some of the really good authors dealing with, with the Viking period, Neil Gaiman in particular has got an excellent book on the Vikings uh, called Children of Ash and Elm. Um, if you read them, or, well, in historical uh, fiction, you've got Bernard Cornwell, the Saxon Chronicles, dealing with Danes and Saxons in England. What you see are people who really admire and, uh, well, frankly, admire the Vikings. Um, they see, well, the, the term vitalism here, I guess, is, is the key thing. They, they see them as people who are, are uh, living life to the full and who anticipate when the time comes and they're going to uh, die, going off to Valhalla and continuing basically doing the stuff they did in this world, uh, which is mostly fighting and feasting. <laughs> okay. So, and, and they see this as being this incredibly, you know, exciting, 
um, life affirming, life affirming when you're looking to die. Okay, but whatever, you know, life affirming uh, way of life. And Christianity is something that is just a whole bunch of legalisms that take away all the joy in life and everything else. And then they're trying to figure out why it is that the Vikings ever actually converted to this obviously inferior religion. Yeah, this is, this is worth, it's worth noting that Neil Gaiman uh, didn't grow up in a Christian environment. In fact, he actually grew up in the world that I am familiar with, Scientology. So I don't, I don't really think, I, I shouldn't say anything too categorically. I suspect that he doesn't really know what he's talking about when he thinks about Christianity because he hasn't seen it from the inside. Now, that doesn't mean, obviously, that people who have seen Christianity from the inside don't have criticisms. Uh, uh, but, I'm, yeah. I'm getting, but, but I'm getting at something, though, that I think is true for many critics in our current moment. So if we were to go back and we say, look at, say, someone like Ernest Hemingway or, or Mark Twain, these are people who criticize the Christian faith, but were pretty familiar with the world uh, that uh, believed in the Christian faith. The folks like Neil Gaiman who uh, react to the Christian faith today don't have the same level of personal exposure, at least at the at sort of the popular level with the Christian faith that those other people did. Anyway, just a thought. Yeah. Now, the, you know, the fact that Christians converted or that, that the Vikings converted is, is something of an embarrassment. And they could try to find all kinds of reasons for it. Um, but uh, where the the article goes, and I'll just give you sort of the punchline here. They, they go to the movie The Northman. Uh, the Northman is based on a, uh, a story in a, a historian named Saxo Grammaticus, um, which also was the basis for Shakespeare's Hamlet. And it tells the story of a Viking who gets in this whole revenge thing going um, without going into, into the details. But what is clear from the movie is that, well, it, it's, it's an interesting movie in that it, what you're doing is you're seeing the world through the eyes of the Vikings, all of their worldview. You know, there's no explanation of anything. You're just dumped into their world. Uh, and I, I think it's really, in a lot of ways, very well done. Uh, but because the world was rather disturbing, it's rather disturbing. So take that as your, your um, uh, what's the word? Um, well, your, your warning on that if you decide to watch it. Uh, trigger warning. That's the word. That's the right. Okay. So, so in any event, what, what is clear there, and it's also clear even in Cornwell's books, that the Vikings had a strong belief in fate. And that they they were what they did was what they were fated to do, you know. In the uh, in the uh, televised version of the the Saxon Chronicles, uh, Uhtred, the main character, uh, at the end of their you know they they give you a quick synopsis of what's going on in Uhtred's voice, you know what happened before and where we're picking it up, and he always ends with the phrase "Destiny is all." Um, mm. And okay, it's a little cheesy, but but. It, that's actually very much in keeping with the way the Vikings thought. You know, this this vitalistic world, you know, this vitalism that you see, this affirmation of, you know, life and excitement, all of that, frankly, rather Nietzsche, and we'll get to that later. Um, mm. That is coupled with a complete lack of freedom. 
because all yeah. they'd have is destiny. What they're doing yeah. is destiny. Whereas Christianity, you know, the way the article goes, I think there's more to it than this, but what Christianity offered them was an escape from that kind of idea that you are trapped by destiny. It offered them an, a, a way of, of obtaining real freedom that was lacking in their old religious system. That's essentially so, where the article goes. Yeah, there are a couple of things that come to mind here that might be worth diving into at least quickly. One is the term vitalism, which is used in, a, in, an, in I think, the 19th and early 20th centuries to um, express a, a sense that, um, as I've heard it uh, put, that we're not just dealing with some um, physical reality, but there's some there's something going on that is vital, that is yeah. at work, kind of beneath the surface of things, that has a way of sort of erupting into the world and even through us. Um, so, does that ring a bell, Glenn? Well, does that relate to, to this at all? To, to some extent, but again, the word the word vitalism, the root word is vita, meaning life. You know, so it's this idea of of uh, I think as the author is using it, it's this idea. Well, let 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 let's 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 pause there for a moment and talk about Nietzsche, because what we're really looking at with Gaiman and with Cornwell is a Nietzschean view of the world. What does mm-hmm. Nietzsche say, particularly in his criticism of Christianity? Christianity takes out everything, all, all the vitality, everything that is really vital about life. Yeah. It it yeah. Um, it suppresses uh, the drive for power. It yeah. suppresses strength. It advocates for the weak and and the the powerless. Um, it it is all of these things that to Nietzsche. Um, were were marks of weakness and basically debilitating to life. Now, if you take the inversion of that, the will to power, the, all, all of those kinds of things, that's what we're really getting at in this case with the phrase vitalism. It's this, you know, this um, idea of these life forces, as Nietzsche would see them, that uh, that surge to the surface and that are acted out and lived out, like I said, will to power, all of those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's the thing I'm thinking about is you know, like, and I think of Schopenhauer and uh, yeah, that's will, what I was going. yeah, will. Schopenhauer. So there's this yeah. sort of uh, kind of irrational drive uh, that's not just human in character, but actually is part of, I guess, the 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 reality that we belong to that. Christianity or any other kind of life-denying system uh, can't really truly thwart or, or defeat because it it's not a product of our will. It, in fact, our will is a product of it. If you get my drift, <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting because I think you know I, I don't think we've done a show fully on Schopenhauer, which may be worth doing. Um, I have yeah have the, the old the old grump. He'd be a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he's, he's what I call the grumpy Beethoven. He looks like Beethoven but grumpy. Um, but he but 
I mean, I really think that he sets the stage for this kind of, you know, to to um, what I call volunteerism become imminentized within nature, if you will. And, and you know, if you will is kind of the way to put it. Um, <laughs> and and it, it sets the stage. But, but it's interesting here because he's definitely, they're reading them, as you just said, the Vikings through that Schopenhauerian, you know, notion. And, and Schopenhauer wasn't fully wrong in noticing something of 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 kind of the non-christian world as 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 being caught up in some of this um but but i'm curious that you know how much of that how much of that interpretation could you say is um legitimate and secondly what you know my question here would be who christianized these beasts <laughs> if, if you will i mean because it was a that's a, that's a bold mission yeah we'll, we'll, to, we'll talk about that one there, there's okay, some good okay. there's some good stories there um yeah. because that that is that those are saints i myself would have to congratulate okay, <laughs> okay. Yeah. so so um to, to to the first point um the <laughs> Well, one one of the problems that we have here is how can you talk about voluntarism in a world of fate? Yeah, right. There's sort of an internal contradiction there. Well, it's almost like fate is just like this superior will, you know, to use this language, that no lesser will has any real anything other to do than just enact what it's been scripted to do. Yeah, Yeah, that's, that's kind of what we see with Islam. Um, yep. you know, with particularly the, the form of Islam that we're familiar with today, not the, the you know, sort of philosophically informed, sophisticated Islam of the, of the ancient world or, you know, of early Islam. But you remember, and, and Gordon, and Gordon Clark. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> but sorry. Do, you, do you remember that film, uh, Lawrence of Arabia? <laughs> remember, remember that point in the film where this is the this is the this is the debate fate. Yeah. So, um, you know, the term they use is it is written. So yeah. it is written that he should die in the desert. You recall that they they make this trek across this waterless portion of the desert where you know there's just no hope that they'll get to the other side, and they do. And when they get to the other side, they count their men and they discover that one of them is not there and that he was left behind. And so the, the, the Arabs who are with Lawrence at this point say, well, it is written that he should die in the desert. And then Lawrence says, nothing is written. And then he jumps on his camel and goes back to, to save the guy. And he does. Uh, and then, like the next day, the guy dies in a in a fight, <laughs> and then they say it was written that he should die. <laughs> um, now, the, the other thing to note, though, about the, this vitalism thing, boy, what what do boys like to do? They like to fight. Yeah, right. You 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 yeah. you, you, you they will make toy guns and and sticks and they play war and all of that. Right. <laughs> this is, you know, this is a a thing that that Gaiman and Cornwell pick up on. I think that this is something that is just natural to us, and it, it it's 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 exuberant, and it's just. I mean, even even Robert E. Lee said that 
it's a good thing war is so terrible because otherwise we would love it too much. That's yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. and he and he and he was fighting one of the very early fa- sort of versions of industrial warfare. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you know, so you you see this even in Christians, you 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 can see this, um, you know, th- this well love of warfare, this this drive to engage in combat, and and all of these yeah. kinds of things. Yeah, as a small and, boy, army was my favorite game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and so so you have that, and it, with you know, to Gaiman and these other guys, the Vikings just embrace that and that's life lives large for them and then their hope is that when they die they go to eternal battle you know they fight during the day they feast at night and probably engage in some other activities and then in the morning they wake up and go and do it again you you were who is it that sang the immigrant song uh about valhalla yeah um um, uh, Led, Zeppelin. Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin, right, right. Yeah, that's a great, that's a, that's a, that's a yeah. They, they tapped into that energy, right, I think. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so, that's great, yeah. Okay, so. Zeppelin 3, Zeppelin 3. I think that, I think that's right. Anyway, sorry. So, um, so that, that's sort of the first thing to note, that the, this thing, the, the, the thing that they're, they're pointing to is a real aspect of humanity. Whether it's a result completely of the fall may be a different question. Because obviously yeah. it's subject, you know, it has been abused horrendously through the centuries by the yeah. Vikings themselves, by the way. Um, but it also seems to be something that God has placed inside of us. You know, that, that um, yeah, the, that this is, that, that uh, I think, who was it? John Eldridge said that, that men want a a fight to fight. Um, I think there were three things: a fight to fight and yeah. a beauty to rescue were two of them. There's something to that. Yeah, and it's hard to deny. I mean, our poetry. Um, well, you think about yeah. you know the Battle of the, of the Pelennor Fields uh, in Return of the King. Mm-hmm. The 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 joy of battle was upon them. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You know, as they're slaying. You know the orcs, the they joy sang of as battle. They slayed. They, they slayed. Yeah. And I have this work um, that I teach when I teach Christianity and peacemaking at Saint Joseph. I don't don't ask me how I got grafted into that <laughs> class. But you know, sometimes you got to go where the work is. <laughs> but one of the books I use is the Virtual War, but on Orthodox, uh, the Orthodox uh, Christians write this. So the Virtual War is very different take than the than the way we tend to in the West. Well, and and even if you um, and, and I wonder about people like Gaiman. What do they do with the warrior monks? I mean, what do they do with the Templars? What do they do with the Hospitallers? I mean, these these were warrior uh, yeah. bands. Mm-hmm. Um, so there there was an ability, at least at one time, for Christians to understand. Um, warfare Christianly. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so th- to your other question, how did the Vikings convert? This is, I think, worth, worth exploring. One of the explanations you get is it was all done, you know, by the Kings on the basis of political calculation. If they become Christians, they get better relations with their neighbors. As near as I can tell, the Vikings were not overly concerned with having good relations with their neighbors. <laughs> yeah, okay, so, exactly. But, but what you do see, and this is where I, th- how I think it comes. You get Vikings who travel down the Russian river systems and make it to Constantinople. You get actually the 
Imperial Guard in Constantinople was called the Varangian Guard, and it was made up of, of essentially Swedes with very large axes. And <laughs> you get a Swede in that part of the world, and he he looks like a giant and very intimidating. Okay, so the yeah. Varangian Guard. So they they had exposure to Christianity. Yeah. In the Orthodox world, they also had exposure to Christianity in the West. Now, the interesting thing is the Norwegians heading heading west and the Danes didn't really have a lot of respect for Christianity until the Christians started fighting back. And when mm. the Christians started having some success in battle, they started saying, hmm, this is something we, you know, what, 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 what's going on here? We always assumed our gods were going to beat the Christian god, and yet suddenly this is turned around. So that starts raising questions. Then there was a king in Norway called Hakan the Good who attempted to Christianize the place, but it didn't quite work out. Uh, he got assassinated uh, by the sons of Eric Bloodaxe, if I remember right. <laughs> um, what a great name. There were some great Viking names. Ivar the Boneless. Um, yeah. Svein Forkbeard was famous. Harold Bluetooth. And as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact our Bluetooth is named after yeah. Harold Bluetooth. Right. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I was just reading something, and I, I can't tell you the history of it. But the, the, the insight was, when you mentioned this notion of, of orthodoxy, is that there was going to be a conquering, and I can't, I'll have to get the history back for, for our audience. And when they went in and actually tried to conquer the Orthodox Church, they went in and said the beauty was so profound, they had never seen anything like it anywhere in their world, to where they almost, they almost fell down and worshipped. Um, and it was, it, was, it was kind of their testimony to, to their conversion as warriors that beauty brought them to their knees. You, you don't typically see that kind of thing <laughs> happen. And, and this, this was kind of a concentrated Christianity that really reached a, an aesthetic that, that, that could bring a warrior to their knees. Well, you're not going to find much of that kind of thing in the world today when it comes to modern aesthetics. But uh, when you think of Homer or yeah. you know any of the great poets of the past— uh, who, what did they sing about? They sang about warriors, and what did warriors do? They they were poets often themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now Norway ends up converting because of King Olaf the uh, First, wow. Olaf Tryggvason, who was the son of Tryggvi Olafsson. You gotta love yeah. this stuff. Um, <laughs> um, Olaf converted to Christianity, and he wanted to see to it that all of the Viking lands, uh, all of the lands under his control converted to Christianity as well. And he went about evangelism as only a Viking would. Um, uh, there were people who, uh, who, when they refused to convert, he executed or tortured. Um, when Iceland didn't want to accept Christianity, he blockaded the island. Um, you know, uh, uh, yeah, so it was um, uh, muscular Christianity, um, I guess you could call it. Yeah. Um, now, now, just so that our listeners don't make any mistakes, I'm not advocating this. I'm just yeah. telling you what happened. Okay. Yeah, but it's an, it's an interesting contingency of history. Mm -hmm. I mean, here, here you're dealing with 
a, a kind of rare and vigorous kind of group of people to which a the gospel does reach and it re- reaches it in a particular form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, well, and I think there's, there's something to be said for the world that they lived in and why they would celebrate this kind of muscular sort of yeah. life or sort of vitalist life. I, I, you know, you're talking about the North and you're talking about, a, you know, a world that can kill you just through exposure. Yeah. You know, you, you're not kill. You don't. You don't die in yeah. the tropics from exposure. Now, now you might <laughs> die from from like disease, insect bites. You know, yeah, yeah, stuff like that. Malaria or something. You know? <laughs> but 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 even even so, I mean, in those situ, you know, in that part of the world, you know, yeah, you'd be attacked by maybe a tiger or or whatever. But um. You, there's there's just a different level of hardship that you're dealing with, and and I think um, there's a tendency for modern people to think anachronistically. We all do, but um, to assume that life was just so much easier, and that there would sort of the the virtues that are celebrated, this, these muscular virtues. It wasn't just about ego. It, it was there was a real basis for it in life. We need you, you know. Yeah. We uh, need you to be strong. Yeah. We need you to be tough. Uh, right. Uh, we de- yeah, we depend on you guys to to make our life possible. In 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 Finland in, in Finnish culture, my mom's side of the family, we have this word called sisu, and there's actually a movie out right now, which I think people have recommended we see. But it's it's about this notion of, of a good sense that everything's going to work out, but you have to grind your way through reality. Yeah, there is no escaping it. You be tough. You deal with it. You, there is no escaping the tough parts of reality. This is this is kind of sisu is the capacity to get through the tough parts of reality in a way that you recognize you need to do it. You know, this is it. And there was a story, a, a writer went to um, to Finland, a, a novelist, and he was hanging out in the pubs. And, of course, the Finns can handle their own in the pubs. But afterwards, it was a very brutal, hard winter. Um, it was hard to walk in. So the journalist is walking back to his hotel, and the guy he was drinking next to drives by, rolls his window down, just says goodnight, and rolls it up and drives off. He doesn't <laughs> offer him a ride. And he later realized that for a Finn, it offends another person to think they're such a wimp that they need a ride in such a hard storm. <laughs> yeah, uh, actually, I just uh, saw a review from, all right, language warning, critical drinker. He's one of the best. He's one of the best film reviewers out there, but he drops his share of f bombs in pretty much every. I saw his review of Sisu, and he yeah. actually recommended it as sort of a throwback to the old '70s style action movies. Um, oh, okay. But, uh, I'm gonna watch it. Yeah, so, yeah. So, but but it, yeah, um, back to the Vikings. Yeah, but 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 actually, you're you're right that 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 kind of toughness is essential to live in that 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 yeah. that world and strength is is yeah. is a major deal too. So um yeah. by the way Olaf is also the guy who when Leif Erikson <laughs> Leif Erikson yeah. family background <laughs> um his uh, grandfather was exiled from Norway uh by because he engaged in what would become a family tradition of conflict resolution he murdered somebody. <laughs> um 
That's his, the way to end the argument. His, his father, <laughs> Eric the Red, was exiled from Norway after getting into a, uh, excuse me, Iceland, where where his his father had gone, uh, for getting into, well, his thralls called, caused the landslide, which killed a neighbor's cattle. So he killed the thralls and Eric promptly proceeded to kill him. So he was exiled from Iceland. He went to a nearby island where he got into a fight with some more people and ended up killing several others. So they just outlawed him and told him he had to leave Iceland for three years. <laughs> so he ended up in Greenland. Um, Leif Erikson was in Iceland, went to Norway, and Olaf converted him. And not by violence. And he commissioned Leif to take a priest back to Greenland to convert Greenland. And that was the voyage which, where he was blown off course and discovered America, established a settlement there, when eventually driven out by what they called the Skraelings, uh, the Native American. Skraeling is sort of uh, the Norse word for a, a barbarian. You got to wonder what makes someone <laughs> a barbarian to a Viking. <laughs> that's right, that's right, that's right. These people are really rough. <laughs> so, so he ended up going back to Greenland and uh, converted his mother very quickly, who built the first church in Greenland. And his mother ended up, by by some accounts, Eric didn't really want to have anything to do with Christianity, but by some accounts, his mother converted his father. Eric the Red got converted by his mother because she refused to sleep with him unless he became a Christian. That's not a method of evangelism I recommend either. But, you know, so, um, okay, so, so, so you have that whole complex of things going on. But another group of Vikings, well-known, converts to Christianity, headed by a guy named Rollo. Rollo the Viking. Rollo was going up the Seine River to raid in Burgundy. And the king of France in Paris really said, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't really let you go by Paris. So Rollo was going to attack Paris. And the king said to him, all right, hey, Rollo, how about, look, look, I'll make a deal with you. How about if I give you the land at the mouth of the Seine River? You can just have it. And, uh, you, you know, you'll have to take it as a fee from me. You know, there's this whole feudal thing going on. But um, what, what do you say? You don't. Then you won't need to raid. You won't have to go attacking people upriver. Now, what the king is thinking is I'm going to get my barbarians to protect me against the other barbarians. We'll put them at the mouth of the river. Then nobody's going to come up the Seine to attack me. Rollo agrees to this. He has to become a Christian. So during the course of the ceremony, uh, things almost went wrong. One of the things that you have to do in the... Uh, uh, feudal tradition in the period is you have to bend over and kiss the slipper of the king. And Rollo was not <laughs> about to do this. And they're telling him, look, Rollo, you got to do this. It, it doesn't mean anything. Nobody's going to think any worse for you. It's just part of the ritual. Um, so he finally pointed to one of his guys and said, you kiss his slipper for me. And the guy is not going to refuse Rollo. So he walked over, grabbed the king's foot and stood up, dumped the king and his throne over backwards. Kissed the slipper, threw it down, and walked. Everybody got a good laugh, but it worked. It, it, it counted. Wallow got baptized, takes the territory at the mouth of the Seine River, expands it out to become the entire province of Normandy, after named after the Northmen, the Normans. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Normandy yeah. is named after after the the, the Northmen, the, the Vikings that settled there. That, that explains something about in my family history. Yeah. So the most violent, colorful sort of 
branch of my family are from that part of the world. <laughs> so when, when, we were, when we were living in Paris, when my daughter was an infant, uh, we'd gone out uh, actually to see a chateau and we're coming back and it was a hot day. And I just said to, to Lynn, Let, let's just stop and get a beer. So we stopped in a, in a bar in the middle of the afternoon. Nobody is there. Uh, and we bring in Elizabeth who is, you know, several months old by this point, but, you know, still very much a baby. And they're not used to having babies in brasseries in France. <laughs> so the, the, um, the woman behind the bar was talking to us, you know, well, what's her name? How old is she? You know, I'm explaining we're from America. Is she old enough to drink? No, you know? didn't ask that. <laughs> but she looked at Elizabeth and she said, oh, she looks like a Norman. She's got blue eyes. Yeah. That's because their descendants are Scandinavians. So, right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, but anyway, Rollo, um, just to complete the story, when Rollo died, this is what's called hedging your bets. When Rollo died, he gave 100 pounds of gold in his will to various monasteries and things like that. He also hung 100 people as a sacrifice to Odin. Wow. That's called hedging your bets, like I said. So yeah. we got to, yeah. you know, how how much do these guys really grasp? I mean, we've got plenty of Viking tombstones that have Christian symbols on one side and pagan symbols on the other. You know how how yeah. is the conversion going? It's not uh, it, it's not as straightforward as it might seem. Yeah, right. Nevertheless, nevertheless, this is something that worth reflecting on. You know, particularly as evangelicals, we're very concerned about sincerity and making certain that we're not doing things in name only, not, in other words, being nominal Christians. Nevertheless, this, you know, we've talked about this before um, with regard to Augustine and forced conversions. Uh, even if, say, you're the, the, sort of the beginning of the story is uh, compromised because of things like this, that doesn't mean that down the stream everything is bad. Um, there are people who later are genuinely converted, who are genuinely saintly, yeah. who are genuinely um, believers. Um, something to think about. I, I'm not. I don't want to. I don't know what to do with it at the moment. I'm not trying to say that this, like yeah. you, like you implied, Glenn, that this is okay. But nevertheless, in God's providence, as opposed to fate. Um, yeah, things kind of work out uh, in ways that. Yeah. Well, you look at yeah, you look at the Normans. Um, it it was said of the Normans that they became more French than the French, which means that they took the French political system and developed it in ways that were far far more effective than anything that the French had. Um, uh, using feudalism, which is effectively a decentralized form of government, and using it to centralize power. They worked out a way to do this. Norman bishops, excuse me, Norman abbots were famous for how strictly they ran their monasteries. Um, yeah. You know, these kinds of things. They, they were, once they converted, once they, they became part of France, within a few generations, they are doing it better than the French are. Yeah, it's, it's Christianity has to enter the bloodstream, and, and I think there is in, in doing that it it's messy, mm -hmm. right? It's the already and not yet. It's not it's not it's not the already in fullness, you know. Mm -hmm. It is the already and not yet, and, and and because it does that, 
it, you know, you, you have these bonds of imperfection, right? And yet providentially they're not, you know, they're not such that, that those imperfect bonds don't end up, you know, working together for the good of the purposes of God. Um, and, and so this is what you, you have going, going on here. I, I think you see this every time Christianity is called. I mean, you think about Pentecost, you know, which is coming up. It, it's the reversal, you know, as, as Christians have talked of Babylon, right? And in the, the judgment of Babylon, in which the languages and the tribes and the people are divided. And so what you have is God at work, God's vocation for humanity at work in every tribe and every nation, even in its fallenness. God has not eliminated everything, keeps it going. And that when Christianity comes, it can't just pick up that language because that language is part of the divided languages. Um, and yet it does have to enter into that language it has to learn that language, and it has to uproot it from within. And I think this is what you have going on. It's got it's got to enter the bloodstream of each of these cultures and all of their violence and everything that's disturbing in order to convert it from the inside out. And that is not an immediate process. It's something that continuously takes time. It, it's ongoing. Are, are Christians too, or at least can uh, evangelicals too purist in this re respect. I, I think so. So yeah, you know, I there's think. a big debate about Christian nationalism, and and one of the yeah. hammers that people use to smash the idea is that well, we don't want to go back to a world in which there were countries that claimed to be Christian, and yet there were you know people behaving badly. Uh, yeah. if we're going to call a, a nation Christian, everybody has to be sincere. Well, let's get real. I mean, yeah. is Christianity the truth? Yeah. If it's the truth, then it, then it should inform our law. It sh should inform our social life. Uh, there are always going to be hypocrites. There are hypocrites today in wokeism. There are people who live one way and then present themselves on social media as something different. Yeah. yeah. Um, wh whose values do you want enshrined in law? You know, Christian values or pagan values? Which one do you right. think leads to human flourishing? I right. mean, these are the kinds yeah. of questions I want to ask. Um, yeah. And, 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 and I think it's fair to say at this point, secularism is a fraud. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, anything good that, that, you know, you know, the kind of liberal project, if you will, um, was hangover from from Christian contributions to things, um, and 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 refining pagan contributions to things. I mean, let's face it. I mean, what we got from the Greco-Hellenic encounter with Christianity gave us the riches, probably, of what brought us to to some of the most profound moments in time. But when you rip those things apart, and Christianity's not informing them, then you get something bad. Yeah, yeah. We refined it. We improved it. We perfected it. It wasn't yeah. as though we just adopted it and said, "Yeah, we're yeah, going to we, conform to it." That's actually th it, that, yeah. that's actually what uh, the church growth movement does. The church growth yeah. movement doesn't change a, a thing yeah. about the culture; it just simply conforms to it in a yeah, it in a market-driven way. Conversion has to be at the heart of it. Yeah. Conver we converted Hellenic culture. It was not adopted or assimilated in non-converting ways. I'm not saying it was perfect. It was a process. This is how God works with time. This is part of incarnation and 
and sanctification. But the fact is, it wasn't about embrace. I mean, you think of the fact the New Testament's written in Greek, okay? Greek was not shaped by the Hebraic world other than, you know, its engagement, you know, it, you know, in the region. And and yet those terms are converted to be utilized to express the very riches of revelation. Right. Um, and then when they go into the world and they take philosophy, at first they say the wisdom of this world is foolishness. The next thing they do, once they have the fr- theological frame in place, the Christian transcendent vision and incarnation trinity, then they can utilize philosophy because it isn't a competitor. It's now a, a, a handmaiden. Rather than a, a, and so this is kind of, but it is something you can't just jump onto. Leslie Newbegin, the famous uh, uh, Lutheran um, minister in India for years, said the same thing. Christ is an irreducible. The incarnation is one of those things that won't be assimilated into any worldview. It becomes the the, the cornerstone. But once it does, it can start to take any culture and any language and assimilate it to assume it is a le- theological language to itself. Yeah, I, I, Newbegin was a really important person in my own intellectual development. He, yeah, he uh, his statement uh, Christianity is public truth was like a yeah. like a like a revelation to me. I was like, wow, that that was what that was yeah. one of those statements that that was paradigm shifting for me because it took me from my pietistic. Yeah sort of yeah. privatistic inward uh, understanding of the Christian faith to, uh, you know, note or sort of see that Christianity is reality. It's not, it's not That's like right. something we impose on reality. It is the revelation of reality. Reality. Yeah. And now my, my soul needs to conform to that. That's, that's the pietism that that's good. Yeah. Uh, I'm yeah. conf- my soul is conforming to reality. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the, the continuing on with Norris, picking up on on what you just said, Tom. One of the things that you see happening is that the Christians in the Norse world, um, and I think this has got to go back to their evangelists, are going to present Christianity as the fulfillment of the Norse mythology, Norse mythology, Norse legends, and everything else, just like they use the uh, uh, the pagan philosophers uh, or the Sibyls uh, in the classical world, they do the same thing in the Norse world. So mm-hmm. that they, you know, one of the one of the core myths is is the myth of Ragnarok, the twilight of the gods, where uh, the time will come when the gods will fight the monsters, the the frost giants, and other monsters. And the gods will be defeated and destroyed, but so will all the monsters. But there's this thing called Yggdrasil, which is the world tree with its, you know, uh, that con- that connects all the nine realms. And Yggdrasil is going to, during Ragnarok, Yggdrasil will open up and take in a pair of people and some of some of the younger gods so that after the world is destroyed, they will come out of Yggdrasil and start anew. They presented the, the the way Christians presented the gospel. They said Ragnarok has happened. The mm-hmm. old gods are dead, and the yeah. cross 
is Yggdrasil. It is the world tree that takes people in and, and gives them salvation so that they come out into the new heavens and new earth on the other side. So they're yes, using these elements yeah. of Norse mythology as a critical part of their presentation of the gospel. And you see this actually physically enacted in the stave churches in Norway, which are made yes. to look like trees that have a central yeah. pillar that is the the, the yeah. trunk of Yggdrasil yeah. and so on. And even in the, the brass fittings on the doorways, if you know the legends, you can see various gods and things like this fighting the monsters. They're telling you that Ragnarok has happened. Now this, yeah, yeah this is something worth sort of reflecting on. Um, so we can approach these myths, legends, in a couple of ways. We can say, well, highly imaginative people <laughs> who are just making yeah. up stuff that has nothing to do with the way the world, world really works. And then yeah. we have clever missionaries who come in and sort of package their stuff in those stories and people buy into it. Or we can say, and I favor this view, is they had it partly right. There, there was a sense in which they were sort of in a working with a lack of information came up with something that was informed by reality in other words it wasn't fully understood but they still had some something that they saw that was real and they were expressing it and then christians come along and, and say let let we're going to tell you the rest of the story we're going to try to help you understand or sort of understand that you you were kind of partly on you were onto something and yep. <laughs> and and now we're right. gonna we're gonna help you see what the what you were onto. Yes, that that is actually again back to Nubian. That is exactly what his work in India was uh, was all about, and even to the point where in India they were using certain sacred texts as forerunners of the gospel, and they would include it in the liturgy. And people are like, "Oh wait, you're going to include that in the liturgy? It comes from this." you know, uh, non-Christian source. No, what they were saying is that there was a, you know, it's like the temple to the unknown God. It was a stepping stone for them to receive the gospel. It was a fulfillment of what limited revelation they were given, but was still a truth that Christ comes in and fulfills and becomes the light of. And and I think this is a radical thing of Christianity, that it is, has the capacity to embrace the gospel for the whole world every tribe, every nation, every language without becoming pluralism or inclusivism, where Christ is actually the centerpiece of all reality. And I mean, I, I think that's what we have going on here. And I think it's, I think it's the, one of the beautiful things of our faith, that it has the capacity to transcend, assimilate, and reorient um, all of the stuff that is limited, fragmented, but still points to Christ because Christ is the creator. You know, the, the classic statement on that in the evangelical world is Don Richardson's uh, Peace Child. Uh, you yeah, know? And beautiful. if you are not yeah. familiar with that, it's worth reading the book. Yeah. It's worth getting hold of it and yeah. reading it for our audience out there. Um, the, the other example that I like using is Ireland. You know, because neo-pagans really like either the Druids or the Norse, typically. They're the two most popular ones. Norse is more popular today. I think the Druids were more popular a little while ago. What most people don't realize is that the Druids in ancient Ireland, the three principal gods of the Celts, each demanded human sacrifice in different ways. 
you know, um, Tyrannus the Thunderer, you would bash their skull in with an axe um, or possibly drown. I think that one was the one that was drowning. Tertatus, the god of the people, uh, preferred garroting or impaling. Um, <laughs> and Essus, uh, I forgot what he did. Um, it, you know, it, it, but, but, you know, this was a really bloody religion. And, you know, there are people who study it who will tell you that, you know, it was considered a great honor to be sacrificed to the gods. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, that's right. And that's isn't it always to be an ally? Yeah, well, you know what? Maybe, you know, okay, maybe that's possible. I don't know. But, but even if we assume it is possible, what happens when Patrick gets to Ireland? What you see yeah. happening is some of the first people who convert are the Druids. Yeah. And I think the reason is that I think it's it's a couple of things. Christianity was the fulfillment of everything that the the druidical religion had hoped for, but even yeah. more, my suspicion, and I can't prove this, but my suspicion is that Patrick said to him, you know, all of your gods demand you sacrifice your sons to them, whereas yeah. the one true God sacrificed his son for yeah. you. Right. Yeah. Right. It, yeah. That's, that's what I mean the by the gift. Yeah. The gift and grace character of our faith Transforming Athanasius will talk about the way in which almost every god gets defanged because of Christ, the triumph of Christ. Uh, you know, um, they'll talk about the way in which basically, you know, once Christ comes on the scene and cosmically encompasses everything, there's no, there's nowhere else to go. You know, not even for atheists, there's nowhere else to go other than the nihil. The, the undoing of everything. And that's where we see our kind of culture now in re rejecting Christ. The nihil is the only place to go. But we can even say on the flip side, what they try to think they're gaining by the nihil in terms of get, being free from determination is not going to liberate them. It's only going to enslave them. And the true liberation comes by being set on the path of the good that you're created for. And I, I, I think the same message is, is, is here to the nihilist as it was to the, you know, the sword wielding, you know, uh, soldier, you know, that, that what, what, you know, it, but I, but I think my fascination is that such a brutal, strong, rigorous, vital, religion as you see in the nordic countries and 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 uh and even in in ireland at the time how christianity because christianity didn't come on the scene weak even in the weakness that christ displays is a strength that fundamentally uproots it and reorients it well one of the things that i think is worth considering is that um, when we say you know when i am weak he is strong all of that yeah. What, what we're in effect uh, really getting at is the source of genuine strength. In other words, real strength. And, yeah. And the source of every strength, uh, you know, and, and, and what I mean by that is um, everything from our inability, uh, you know, of a weightlifter to deadlift a thousand pounds to yeah. uh, enduring torture to... Um, you know, uh, waking up in the middle of the night, take care of your baby for the 10th time uh, when the baby cries, 
when the child is a newborn, all that stuff is strength. And that owes it, you know, sort of our ability or our capacity for strength comes from God. Where else could it come from? So, you know, the weakness is, is, is not a denial of strength. It's not a rejection of vitalism. It's noting that I am not the source of strength. God is the source of strength. We don't need to create some kind of cult of weakness. Mm-hmm. That's grotesque. We see it all over the place. And I think it's rooted in, in envy and resentment more than it is in a celebration of God's goodness. But anyway. Yeah. Well, in, in this, this is there was a big trend some years back, William Plake or other theologians, the vulnerability of God. And I get what they're up to. But I also get that what they're saying there is problematic. You know, God, God isn't vulnerable. I think what they were trying to do is God can, can God can in God's transcendence is such that the weak are not outside of its range. I get that. But I al- broke and hurt. I I, yeah. I also suspect it's naive. I, I when I read stuff yeah. like that. I think either you're in denial or you've not experienced reality. Yeah. (laughs) So over the course of my life, I have known many people, and I say that very deliberately, many people who use weakness as a lever or leverage to get you. In other words, they they make a power play on you using weakness to, to sort of elicit sympathy so that they can manipulate you to get you to do what they want. I saw it on the streets. I've seen it in households. Uh, it's one of the more insidious and deceptive approaches to manipulating people that's out there. And in the the world of wokeness, it's not only accepted, it's valorized. And the woke are the worst. Um, the whole woke agenda uses weakness to illicit guilt so that people uh, can be manipulated so that people, other people can get what they want. An example, uh, Black Lives Matters was audited and it's almost broke. The organization I'm talking about. They got $11 billion and nobody knows where it's gone. I think we do suspect though, that it went to make for high living, uh, when it comes to the people who are behind Black Lives Matters. In other words, it was a con. Um, now, we all want to make a difference in other people's lives. We all want to, to give things to people in need. Yeah. And that's precisely what these vile people use against us. Yeah. Our desire to make a difference, our desire to be loved, our desire to, to love. Yeah. Yeah, they use that to their advantage. They are the lowest yeah. of the low, the worst yeah. of the worst. At, yeah. at this point, it's good to bring in Tolkien and Lewis whenever possible. You want to bring in Tolkien and Lewis? <laughs> yeah, um, That's right. they, they they were both fans of what they called northernness, yeah. which, says, yeah. Yeah. which says that they looked at the, particularly the Norse and, and Germanic peoples. They they weren't so much into the Celts. But but the the Norse and Germanic peoples, they said, you know, these guys had a lot of real virtues about them. 
But like any culture, those virtues needed to be purified by Christ because there was a lot of evil that went with it. But virtues like courage, toughness, endurance, uh, self-reliance, being true to your word. You know, you'll notice in the Lord of the Rings, if you say something, if particularly if you take an oath, if you don't fulfill the oath, the oath will fulfill it for you. You know, these kinds of things, strength, all of these kinds of things, they recognized as genuine virtues that were characteristic. they, They were the virtues that existed within the pagan society. They needed to be redeemed by Christ. They needed to be purified by Christ. Yes, but they were genuine virtues. And that is another thing that's interesting about Christianity in that it recognizes through the phenomenon of common grace, it recognizes that cultures, even fallen cultures, even pre-Christian cultures, all of these have genuine virtues that can be celebrated and redeemed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there is a gift of toughness, you know. I'll never forget as a kid, my, my mom's brother, my uncle, he's, he's, he's with the, you know, he's gone now. Uh, but he was a big guy, tough Finnish man, 100% thin. He had a broken pinky that he never fixed. He played basketball, he never fixed it. I remember I was a little kid, and I remember saying, why didn't you get that fixed? He goes, because I'm a man. Yeah, splints are for sissies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, I would say is a form of toughness that needed to be redeemed. <laughs> but, but you get the psychology there. It's like even he, you know, in a modern world didn't think, you know what I mean? I need to go get this thing. His finger was like this, you know? Right. But it was just like that. But even as a kid, I was just like that. That's kind of impressive. You know, didn't it hurt? You know, didn't it? Well, and, you know, but, and, no, we can laugh about that guy. But at the same time, yeah. we can admire him and we should not merely because of his ability to deal with pain, but also because of yeah. his s- s- sort of a intuition that yeah. uh, kind of giving himself into or giving into the pain is yeah. going to make him a servant of those people who alleviate the pain, if you know, if you know what I'm getting at. Yeah, no, I get you. Yeah. I get you. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So one of the things that is always, so some of our listeners know that I have a kind of odd background, but I spent time in uh, on public assistance, lived in housing projects, spent a uh, portion of my childhood in foster care. <laughs> and uh, what I, what I learned firsthand is that helping professionals are not just interested in helping you. They're interested in helping themselves and using you as the justification for doing so. That's a very cynical take, but I want you to know it's true. Hmm. And unless you can handle that, you're not an adult. Hmm. Yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah, I don't know how to follow that one. Um, (laughs) Right on. But yeah, you know, the the fall affects everything. And, you know, in, you know, it's going to affect even people in in the so-called caring professions. I mean, you know, you've got to expect that. Um, 
So in, in any event, I, I think that the, the, you know, one of the things that is, is worth remembering uh, as we take a look at this is I think going back to the beginning, I think Gaiman and um, Cornwell really, well, number one, don't get Christianity. And number two, I don't think they actually get the Vikings. <laughs> yeah. that's worth that's worth underscoring because it's a good article out of it <laughs> because the fact is that okay yeah they they get them up to a point but the fact is when they can't explain why they voluntarily convert to christianity they're missing something yeah and yeah. they're missing something both on the christian side and I suspect also, like I said, on the Norse side, better call them Norse rather than Vikings. Viking is a profession. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, can you explain that quick as we end? Oh, here yeah. what you, 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 Viking is, is actually a, a verb. It's a participle. You go Viking. Uh, and what it yeah. means is basically raiding. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, the, the properly you should refer to the culture as Norse. Um, but the yeah. people who are Vikings are the ones who are out doing raiding and things like that. Sometimes wow. the term can be used for trading, you know, more peaceful relations as well. But mostly it refers to people who are raiding. That's a, <laughs> that's a great note to end on because I didn't know that. And I suspect that a number of our listeners didn't know that either. Anyway, thanks for listening to the Theology Podcast. This has been a fun episode for us anyway we hope it's been fun for you and uh if you'd like to support us on patreon we'd really appreciate that there's a link in the show notes but i want to state at this point that uh, we've got a live event that is just yeah. a few days away we are going to be live in memphis uh and we're there during the uh pca presbyterian church in america general assembly um we're not an uh, a formally endorsed event by the pca just so you know we're <laughs> we're not yeah. saying that that we're a little outside the camp but <laughs> that's right we're not saying that we're part of the pca <laughs> but uh we are uh having a couple of live shows live podcasts so you if you're in memphis uh and part of the pca and there at the general assembly we'd love to have you with us or if not just, part of the pca if you're in memphis yeah that's right. That's exactly right. We're going to be at the Courtyard Marriott Downtown Memphis, which is uh, 75 Jefferson Avenue. And we're going to be there on Wednesday, June 14th. And we're going to have uh, uh, some time there between the hours of 3 o'clock and 7 o'clock. And we're going to do two shows. One of those shows is going to be with our friend George Grant, who's from Nashville and a great guy, and a very learned person, and we're going to have a good time talking to him. And our second show is going to be with uh, Doug Groteist, or Groteist. Uh, did I get that right this time, Glenn? Groteist. Yeah. yeah. Long O, and, not long U. Gotcha. And uh, we're going to talk with him about his most recent book, published by Salem Books, and it's on the theme of uh, critical race theory, which is, I think, a a worthwhile conversation to have in the proximity of the PCA General Assembly, seeing as <laughs> how yeah. uh, critical race theory in a watered-down uh, form has found its way into that into my denomination. But anyway, uh, so 
uh, we'd love to have you with us. There's no charge to participate in the event. Uh, we've got room for 50 to 100 people to be with us. We're going to have plenty of time for fellowship and comfort and, and food and so forth. We're going to be. You can buy us a few rounds. That's right. That's right. That's right. You're much we're more entertaining after a couple of rounds. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. The only thing that it will conflict with is the uh, end of the day uh, of business at the PCA General Assembly, which is the dullest part of the day in the late afternoon. So if you're looking for an escape, you can come and be with us. You will get out in plenty of time to be uh, able to participate or to attend the PCA uh, and its 50th anniversary celebration at 7.30 right, right, okay. right down the road. So, so Do they have cigar smoking at the... I'm sure there will be plenty of cigar smoking somewhere in the vicinity. <laughs> okay. all right, all right. Anyway, thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope to see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye now. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy another of our podcasts, The Good Life Podcast, featuring Matt Carpenter interviewing experts in their field about how their work contributes to the good life.